when I have a meeting and I have a husband and wife that's sitting there, I equally involve the wife as much as the husband. Listening is such an important part of this process. I've worked with couples before where the husband has passed away and now I'm working with the wife and she comes in looking like a deer in the headlights. I don't know what I'm supposed to do. I've never done any of this. And my conversation is, we can do this. Just because you never did it before doesn't mean that you can't do it. It's just that you didn't have to do it. Money is more than dollar signs and numbers. It's emotion. And I think men get that, but women tend to especially get that. A lot of times you play referee, you do play life coach, you play a shoulder to cry on. We keep a box of tissues on the corner of our desk because it can get real deep real fast. You understand sometimes you'll make a recommendation because the numbers make sense but the emotion doesn't make sense for them. And having a conversation about that, I think really helps engage women. Women coming into this industry come in with a compassionate educational stance and men have been more order takers throughout the years and get on to the next client. I would just say to them to please just start, continue using free, jargon and talking about returns and you will drive people away and push them towards the female advisor. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Stathis Mattel Industry Leadership and Success Podcast Series. This series focuses on industry-leading performance, success stories, and key business intelligence that will help you meet your leadership objectives. And now I'll turn it over to our hosts, Scott Stathis and Bob Mattel. Hello and welcome to this episode of Industry Leadership and Success, which is inspired by the impressive momentum of female leadership, influence and success in our industry. I'm Scott Stathis of Stathis Partners, and I'm excited to be co-hosting today's discussion. So we have explored this topic in previous episodes of our sister podcast series, BISA Industry Trend Watch, where we've interviewed women leaders in our channel. For today's episode, we'll be digging deeper to where the rubber meets the road, and we'll be talking to a group of four top women advisors about topics such as what has contributed to their success, advice they have for male advisors, advice for firms looking to hire more women advisors, and the importance of effectively attracting and serving the women's market. So our panelists will introduce themselves in a moment, but first I'd like to thank Raymond James for inspiring and supporting this podcast. And now I'll turn it over to my partner and co-host, Bob Mattel, so he can introduce himself. Bob? Well, thanks so much, Scott. I am Bob Mattel, and I am the co-host of today's podcast. And today we have an amazing panel of top women advisors in our industry. So to all of our listeners out there, sit back, relax, and start taking notes, because this is going to be a great conversation. So let's meet the panelists. First, the team from Pennsylvania, Annette. Hi there. My name is Annette Martin. I'm from Lancaster, Pennsylvania. I am currently with a bank program that has a long, small bank history here in Pennsylvania. And I understand you have a partner on the panel as well, Wendy. Hi, yes, Wendy Ellis. I work with Annette. I've been in the business for about nine years with Annette for about five now. 
Awesome. We can't wait to hear all about the partnership that you have developed over the years. Let's cross the country and go to California for Laura. Hi, my name is Laura Pedrincelli. I am with Addison Avenue Investment Services. We are a credit union program. I've been here for 15 years and in the industry for about 27 years. We can't wait to hear all about those 27 years. That should be quite the education for all of our listeners out there. We're going to move back to Tennessee now and meet Heidi. Hey, thank you for having me. I'm Heidi King. Wilson Bank and Trust Investment Services. I'm here located in the heart of Nashville, Tennessee, and I've been in the industry about 15 years now. Awesome. We have a lot of experience. I should have counted the years, but it sounds like we have over 100 years of experience on this panel today. So I'm in New York, but I'm going to pass it to Massachusetts. And thanks again to Raymond James for sponsoring this podcast. Now to you, Scott, for question number one. All right. So thanks, Bob. Before I get into question number one, I just like to give a little bit more background on the advisors that will be in the discussion today. Annette, you've been in the business for 27 years, if I recall correctly. Wendy, you already said about eight years. And as a team, you guys generate what your T12 GDC is about 2 million, if I recall. Correct me if I'm wrong, but those are the numbers that I have. Laura, you said 25 years in the business, right? You used to be in mortgage and commercial banking which is interesting. We're going to be asking a little bit about developing those internal relationships to help grow the business. But your T12 is about a little over two and a half million, if I recall. Yeah. That's pretty impressive. Heidi, 16 years, you started as a teller. You're a wholesaler as well. I understand you will not work with clients if they're not interested in having a financial plan. Cool. Your T12 is approaching a million, if I recall correctly. Awesome. Good stuff. All right. So just a little background relative to the success of the advisors on today's panel. So the first question, and maybe Annette, you can lead us off with this one. So are there any unique skills, characteristics, or approaches you've leveraged to enable you to be as successful as you are in what has been a male-dominated industry, but it's actually changing fairly quickly. What do you attribute your success to? Well, when I think about skills, characteristics, approaches, and I thought about how that pertained to me, all the words that I came up with were emotional characteristics. I'm very passionate about what I do. And at the same time, when I'm meeting with clients, I spend a lot of time just listening and trying to get a better feel for how I can help them. While I'm excited, I also try to bring a calming effect because a lot of the clients that we meet with, investing is somewhat new to them. They don't have a lot of previous experience, either because they weren't exposed to it, they didn't have money, and then all of a sudden they might have come into some money. And there's a lot of different reasons why someone doesn't have the experience. And so when they come to us, I say sometimes I feel like they're scared because they don't know what to expect. And so we can pick that up and just trying to calm them and let them know that we are here for them. This is what we do every day. It's not what they do every day. So listening, taking the time to listen and get a feel for what it is that they need from us. Keep bringing that back up to them as we have conversation. What do you want from us? What do you see your future looking like? What scares you about your future? I also 
spend a lot of time trying to determine what roles, if I'm meeting with a husband and wife, what role the husband, what role the wife take. We have a lot of older clientele in our book of business. And in the older generation, it was typically the male that handled all the money and all of the finances. And I try to be respectful of that. But when I have a meeting and I have a husband and wife that's sitting there, I equally involve the wife as much as the husband, because it comes out a lot of times that they're not even on the same page. So for me to understand how I can better help them, I need to understand where each of them are coming from. So I try to be respectful of whatever role the male or the female is taking. And I've worked with couples before where the husband has passed away and now I'm working with the wife and she comes in sometimes with looking like a deer in the headlights. I don't know what I'm supposed to do. I've never done any of this. And so my conversation is we can do this. You, just because you never did it before doesn't mean that you can't do it. It's just that you didn't have to do it. So we'll take this one step at a time. And every time that we're together, if you walk away knowing one more thing that you didn't know before, then we're accomplishing something. And it is very rewarding to see how that woman progresses from, I don't know anything, I don't even know how to balance a checkbook, to eventually starts asking questions because I was thinking about this or I heard this. What do you think? How's that going to fit into my portfolio? And using a planning tool such as we have available with Raymond James, which is our GPM system, that allows us to walk through all of the changes that you know are occurring in their lives and what do we need to do do we need to adjust anything do we need to create more income do we need to change the portfolio as to how it's aggressive risk wise so i enjoy going from hey i'm working with the husband and the wife the husband's passed away and now it's i'm working solely with the wife and to see her progression from when i first meet her and as that continues to grow into somebody that they become more confident in what they're able to do. And I think sometimes it takes them by surprise that they're able to do it on their own. When I think of skills, characteristics, approaches, again, I bring all that into it's really emotion. I try to put myself in their shoes. What if that's my mom sitting there? So we have sympathy, we have empathy. And I think that is something that a female advisor is stronger at than possibly some of their male counterparts. You said a few things there that really resonated with me. And Wendy, I want to hear your thoughts too, as a teammate to Annette, but a few of the things that stand out, one, you talked about the emotional factors that contribute to your success. And a lot of what you said culminated in my mind to a nurturing mindset that you're really helping the people that you're working with by doing a lot of listening and in many cases, education. and calming and caring. You also said you want to find out what scares them about their future and about their finances. I think that's critical. I, I think there's not enough attention paid to that. And what's interesting about what you said when you're working with a couple is that I'm guessing the answer to that question is very different between the male and the female. 
And it's important for you to know what those differences are. The other piece right, of what you said is uh, you refer to women whose husband pass and they inherit money. We're going to be talking about the women's market in, in a little bit later in this discussion, but it's an incredibly quickly growing market relative to wealth management. I was having a discussion with somebody. I was at a conference last week. I was having a discussion with somebody and they're just talking about their neighborhood. And this person said, in my neighborhood, as far as the people I know in my neighborhood, in the majority of households now, the wife is making more than the husband in the whole neighborhood from the people that they know. That's interesting. And so that's some of the stuff that we're seeing relative to the women's market. So anyway, Wendy, I want to hear your thoughts, but just one point of clarification for our listeners. You mentioned GPM, that's goal planning and monitoring, which is the Raymond James version of Money Guide Pro, right? That's the planning software that you use. So just for our listeners, if you hear GPM in this discussion, it is financial planning based on the Money Guide Pro application. Wendy. (laughs) I was actually hired by a man at Fulton and my first partner was actually a male. And I, being in two partnerships, I've had discussions with people like, how do you start in this industry? And I always think of the two things is like competence and trustworthiness. So in order to meet and be in front of clients, you have to get an advisor to trust you with those clients. When I was first sitting in front of clients, I was 24 years old, a woman. And I think one of the biggest things is showing that you're competent in this area. And I think back to, I love listening to portfolio managers because they talk about things that sometimes are emotional or political, and it's just straightforward. And that's one of the things I always try to do is, you know, if we're talking about their budget, the markets, anything is to show competence, have that level-headed mindset when you talk about it. And to get a, an advisor to let you do that, you they have to know you're going to treat their clients exactly like they do. They have to know that when they ask you to do something, you do it. Whether that's something small that you don't think should be your job right now, like you got to do it. And so I really think like competence and that trustworthiness of just getting things done really goes a long way. And Annette, mentioned passion before. And so Wendy, I think that's relative to you because I remember you telling us that you've wanted to be an advisor since you were 13 years old, correct? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I have. Yes. I can't tell you why. I was interested in finance and my mom bought me a book and I just ran with that. Yeah, no, that's cool. And good for you. You're fulfilling your dream and you're helping other people <laughs> while you're doing it. And I think that's yeah. something that everybody should keep in mind. And that is the social relevance to what we do, right? Mm-hmm. You are helping people live better lives, right? And you're helping them achieve their dreams. And there's a lot of social relevance to the job of being an advisor. That's very rewarding when you do your job well. And I think that's something that we mentioned this before, but that point has to be made when we're trying to recruit especially next geners into our industry, because that resonates with them as well. So good for you. So Laura, do you have some thoughts uh, relative to the question? I do. The two words that I wrote down were listening and educating. Exactly what Annette said. Listening is such an important part of this process. And for me, the education part, I just, I thrive on that. I thrive on cutting through all of the data that's out there and getting it down into a simple format for clients to understand. I thrive on the education part. 
Let me just mention something about listening. There was an FPA study done last year. And one of the interesting aspects of that study was they asked advisors if they did more listening or talking. And they asked the advisors to estimate the percentage of time they spent listening versus talking. Then they asked their clients the same question. (laughs) So the differences in the responses were very interesting. On average, the advisors thought they listened 75% of the time and talked 25% of the time. And if you ask their customers, it was totally reversed. So (laughs) as advisors, most advisors, now I'm going to take a guess here and I might be wrong and my guy friends out there are going to kill me for it. But I think guys are more guilty of that than females. I think male advisors have a much more difficult time truly listening because they want to come across as smart. And so they're talking more than they even realize. I'm going to get in trouble for that comment. That's just my gut. Stop talking. Stop talking. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. I'm going to shut up now. (laughs) Yeah. Listen more than you talk, right? Heidi, thoughts? Yeah, I really wanted to just piggyback on what Annette and Laura have said, because it really, I think, boils down to this industry has really changed over time. And women coming into this industry come in with a compassionate educational stance. And men have been more order takers throughout the years with either individual stocks or just what do you need? Let me put the portfolio together and get on to the next client. And the the industry itself, I think, has truly evolved into being more financial planning driven and really taking its time to listen like we've all been talking about and say, what do you need? And then let me break that down so you understand what you need. Because so many times there can be so many buzzwords that are used in this industry that they have no clue what we're talking about. And I just want to make sure when somebody sits in front of me, not only do you listen, like Annette said, because I think that's key number one to really take in what your client needs from you, but then to make sure that they understand what they're getting in the end. Yeah, yeah, totally agree. All right. So Bob said, I'm going to stop talking and pass it back to Bob. You put me on the line of all the talking, but no, I want to dig a little deeper into what is the, uh, the real success here. And ask about process, because you know, when you really think about it, we all have the same types of products as financial advisors. They're commodities, but your process is really your product. And when you think about process, the process you use to develop and manage client relationships, are there specific parts of the process that you feel are most critical? Let's start with Wendy. And for example, do you have preferred discovery questions or something that really resonates with you in your practice? Yeah, kind of lean on our discussion we had as far as the emotional aspect that we have. And I think one of the first things I always do when I meet with a new client, explain what I do for them, what our goals are, what our plan is, but then put it back on them and really focus on what are you here for? And I think that's a really important part of the process because If I just go in and start asking questions right away, and I'm not asking questions about what they ultimately want to get out of this, if I'm talking about college planning, but they're focused on retirement, we're not going to connect well, and we're not going to have a lot of success going forward with the planning. But I also think 
this business is about relationship building. So it's also about having a good process of how you continue to connect with your clients. We use client relationship management and we try to set up annual reviews, task in between. If we come out of a meeting and a client has told us that they have a kid's wedding coming up or graduation, or they have a surgery. I think part of our process too, is to immediately get something on the calendar to remind us, reach out, send a card, do something like that. So I think as far as that relationship building aspect, that's a big part of our process. We also use gathering sheets to ask questions about the more numbers aspect. And we try to give that to our clients ahead of time, especially new clients that we're bringing on board because it gets them in the right mindset and we're not surprising them as much when we get to meetings. So that's going to include questions about the things we're going to want to put into that planning. So what is, what's your income? What's your budget look like? What goals do you have for the future? I was going to ask a follow-up question, but I think you just answered it. So it's more or less an established and set procedure that is repeatable. Yes. Yes. That's what we try to do. I also think we're creatures of habit. You know, it's, easy once you set that process and you start doing that. Okay, this is what we send to them ahead of time to gather this information. It just becomes a habit that when we have a branch send us a referral, it's automatic for us. So this is what we do. We're going to call, we're going to touch base with them, get an email address to get that out and prepare them for the meeting. I just want to just deviate just a little bit because right now we're in obviously a very volatile market. The markets are crazy. Are you finding you're deviating a little bit with your process? Because of that? I would say no, because I think that what we do, the investments are just almost an afterthought. I think maybe in in some of our process with our reviews, we are adding more time to talk about their portfolios, what's happening with the market. But I view the investments as the means and not the end. And the end is getting them to their goals. I think that when these times happen, yes, maybe we're reaching out a little bit more. Maybe we're having more time within the meeting. That's usually the end of our meeting. Maybe that comes more to the forward because they're bringing it up right away. But I don't think it really changes too much with the process that we run our meetings. Annette, you had something to add. Yes, I would want to add to that, as Wendy was saying, we are in crazy times right now. And that's where our planning tool comes into play, because we'll refer back to that a lot and say, even with what's going on in the world today and the markets being crazy what they are, when we pull up your plan, maybe went from 95% successful to 94% successful due to what's happening in the markets today but your plan is still successful. So when you can show them their plan and say, yeah, we can see your account values have dropped a little bit, but your plan is still successful. And then we turn around and just say, we want to make sure that the portfolio that you're in matches the risk tolerance that you're willing to take. So you've been through these markets now. So if we feel that this is making you uncomfortable, when we have some recovery, do we need to make an adjustment to your portfolio? But keep in mind that even with the risk that you're exposed to right now, your plan is still showing you that you can achieve all these goals that we did at the very beginning of the plan. I want to travel. I get a new car. 
I do gifting. I had some remodeling that I want to do. You can still do all of those things and you still will have enough money. You will not run out of money in your lifetime. And you can just see this big sigh of relief that comes over them and then say, oh, I never really thought about it like that. Thank you for sharing that plan with us once again. So it focuses the conversation on their goals and plans, not the fact that what percentage is my portfolio at? It takes it away from portfolio performance and brings it back around to what's important to you. You're still going to be able to do all of these things. And that must be an extremely calming message to deliver. And that goes back to the process. Laura, I see you nodding. I'm sure you have something to add to that. It's exactly what I'm doing now. I'm doing this in every meeting, every day, pulling up their plan, reminding them that we have planned for this. It's happening now. It's going to happen four, five, six more times while they're retired. It's going to feel different every time. It's going to feel awful every time. But Mm -hmm. let's remember, we planned for this. All of our listeners, I hope they're jotting that down. I had the same conversation with my financial advisor a few weeks ago. I'm like, I'm good. I'm like, it's only off by one or 2%. And that's what we planned for. That's coming. Heidi, you have something to add? Really, everybody's had a process, I think. But for me, COVID flipped the script on that process. And I went through and really overhauled and took that opportunity to really dig deeper into what's meaningful in these conversations. And we all had to do it a little different and continue to do it a little different. And it really does shift the focus of that conversation from the numbers to being more calming and reassuring versus, hey, we're down 15 to 20% because Laura said, that's gonna happen again. It's happened before, it won't be the last time. I was on a previous podcast earlier this week and apparently we've had four bears in 22 years, this too shall pass. And be careful if you're in the uh, in the woods, because you never know when a bear might appear. So <laughs> that, uh, I wish I had a laugh track for that, because that was pretty lame. Let me pass it to Scott, who has a question going on a different angle. I do. But before I ask that question, just real quickly, follow on question to what all of you were just discussing. So if you think about your process, the process by which your clients experience you and your service, but also the process by which you uh, enables you to gather assets. Is there any one part of your process that you think is more important than all the others? That's a random question, but anybody with thoughts, Heidi? I think the onboarding part of our process is the most important because it really sets expectations, not not only of me, for what they can expect, but it does set expectations of there will be volatility, there will be tough times, and this is the plan that we are going to start, and it will mold and grow with you over the course of the next 10, 15, 20, 30 years. And so I really think setting those expectations and those standards up front is, has been most impactful to me and my clients. Okay, that sounds good. Laura, did you have a thought in that regard? I was just going to add, once we get through the process of creating the plan, then I will talk about what my job is as the asset manager, because I manage discretionary portfolios for my clients. I tell them that my job is to remove the emotion from that piece of the planning. I am here to remove the emotion and make data-driven decisions for them. That resonates particularly during a period of time like this, where everything is so emotional, 
They're hearing in the media, oh, you shouldn't be in the market. You should get out of the market. They're hearing those things all the time. And my job's to remove that emotion, rely on the data, make the difficult decisions for them, knowing that I'm always here to help them get through this plan. It's the, the emotional response to market conditions that always get you into trouble, right? Yes, yes, <laughs> yes. Because I, I'll say, you know, it feels great when you get out of the market. Oh my gosh, I'm out. My, I'm safe. And then I say, when are you going to get back in? Uh-huh. <laughs> I turned it on them. When are you going to get back in? What's going to be the impetus to, that drives you that says, it's time to get back in. And that really makes people stop and think because they don't know when the right time to get back in. And I tell them, I don't know the right time either. That's why we have a plan. Right. So thank you for those thoughts, Annette, Wendy. Just want to see if you have any thoughts relative to what you think is the most important part of your process. I would just like to piggyback on what Laura was saying. And when we go through this very emotional thing and do I get out when do I get back in you know what I plan on is I can't guarantee if we're at the bottom or not but I can tell you that I can guarantee you that we're not at the top so exactly when do you want to get back in I don't know we don't know either so you stay with it because what goes down is going to come back up and we try to when we come across a good newsletter or typically something from an economist, it's amazing how all the client hears is what they actually hear on media or read. And it's all negative stuff. There's nothing positive that's out there. But when you listen to the analysts and the economists who are studying real data, what they say is somewhat calming. And we try to get some that out to our clients to say, this is what you're hearing. But there's also this side of it, too, that you're not hearing and you're not being told. So to have the kind of both sides of the seat, there is negative. I'm not saying that there isn't some negative, but here are people that are following data that do this every single day. And they're not as negative as everything that you're hearing. And it's, it's funny when we send something out, we'll actually get the comments back from our clients. Hey, thanks for sending this. Been through this before and always have come out on the better end. But we appreciate the emails. Don't worry about us here. <laughs> it's just like this is exactly the precedence that we set at the very beginning that these things are going to happen and it's built into the plan. So Go do what you do best, which is enjoy your retirement and reach for these goals and let us do what we do best, which is plan for that and manage the portfolios accordingly. Yeah. Now, it's, in, it's very interesting what you said about the, the media versus the economist. I watched a short video this morning and it was an advisor and one of the, it was really good. It's three and a half minutes long, but he had some really good points. And one of the things he said is, listen, the average bear market, so we're in a bear market, the average bear market lasts for 11 months. But if you take out the three that had extenuating circumstances, the average bear market lasts for six months and we're about five months in. So take it for what it's worth, but right, they always turn around. And so that's relevant to, to what you just said. All right, I have another question, but one more comment. And that is none of you said, when I asked what's the most important part of your process, none of you mentioned the discovery part of your process. So my 
assumption is that is the most critical. And I'm curious why none of you brought that up. Do you not agree it's the most critical or is that just not what jumped to mind? When do you, I see you have a comment. What I was thinking was our annual review calls. Like we have a process in place for ensuring that we're at least once a year, some of our clients more than that, reaching out to them. And I guess in some ways it goes to discovery because one of the reasons I think that's so important is we have clients that like they'll get an inheritance and they go put it in a CD for 18 months. And that's not, especially now, not the best choice. And so we're missing out on discovery in some ways if we're not in constant contact with them. And if you don't build that idea that, well, when those things change, when something that we identified in the discovery process changes, you should reach out to us. And you can't do that if you don't set it by bringing those up in all of those review meetings. So I guess in some ways that is discovery, but I think it, I don't think I would have said that right off the bat because it seems so natural. Of course, we're doing that. It's just not the first thing that pops in my mind, but yeah, yeah it's important. <laughs> Yeah, if it's an innate part of your process that doesn't even jump out as an individual part of the process, that's a good thing because discovery is not one and done. It's ongoing, literally, because lives change every year. So anyway, all right. So that was a long way around to get to my next question, which is if you, and and Laura, I'd like to start with you because you've been in the mortgage department and the commercial banking department. One of the things that I've always believed is that if you can get some good cross-departmental business flow going and referral flow going, you're going to be golden as an advisor. So what does that mean? It means if you can develop good relationships with centers of influence in your bank, like lenders, right? Mortgage lenders, commercial lenders, et cetera, you're going to have not only good teammates internally, but a great source of referrals. And it's a two-way street, right? You're going to make referrals to them as well. So the question is, do you have advice for developing relationships and working with other influential bank colleagues. My last 15 years here at Addison Avenue, I actually work inside the credit union branch. I don't have those connections with commercial banking any longer. So I look at each branch member as my most influential contact. I treat them all with respect and I try just like I try with my clients, I do education. So in weekly meetings, I will educate them about their 401k. I will open the door to say, please come in, let me help you with that so that they can learn that it's not scary to sit down with an advisor. I think a lot of younger tellers, they're going to be intimidated. And I try to remove that right away. And one of the one of the things that I've always told all the branch staff is recommend that our members come and interview me. Recommend that they come in and interview my junior rep. I put the member in the power seat because then they feel a little bit more confident if they're intimidated by coming to meet with an advisor. What does that mean? If I don't have any money, why are they going to want to meet with me? So I always recommend that our staff say, hey, why don't you go in and interview Laura? See what, see if you gel with her. And that has worked. It's been golden. It's been absolutely golden. Yeah, I like that positioning. So in any of the rest of you with thoughts in that regard, Wendy? Yeah, so at Fulton, we actually have what we consider private banking. So that is higher deposit customers, higher net worth customers that the bank feels should have more of a 
single person they can call to instead of just going to a branch and seeing whoever's available. And I've been lucky enough to build some strong relationships with some of those. And I really take it back to what I talked about as skills and characteristics to be successful. And that's confidence and trust, ensuring them that they work very hard to build this relationship with this bank customer. They don't want to hand it off to someone that's going to destroy that relationship or lose their trust that, hey, you your team, the person you're sending to me, why would you ever send that? I've done that partly by just being someone that can be informative. A few of our private bankers, if they're not sure if it's a fit that we can provide before they even send, they'll say, hey, I have this person. We're thinking about that. Is that something Raymond James and you can help with? And just being open to helping them, even if that means hey, there's no business there. And I really think, again, it's just confidence and trust and showing that you're going to take care of their clients the same way they take care of their clients. Yeah, totally agree. Heidi, it looks like you have some thoughts in that regard as well. Absolutely. Well, we get a chance to go into the branches on a daily basis and educate and be around those tellers. We've actually realized here at Wilson Bank that we haven't been connecting with those lenders and haven't been connecting with the commercial bankers. So we're actually starting a new program to really to pair up commercial lenders with an advisor. So we've got about 10 advisors throughout 30 branches. And so we're starting those strategic partnerships. So that way they've got a relationship built on trust so they can understand you're not just giving it to any advisor. You're giving to somebody that, that you've got a partnership that you can refer business back and forth to that they're, you're going to take care of each other's customers. So I'm really excited to see how that goes. But I think that's going to be a real success because those commercial lenders, they're outside of our branches, really calling on the types of customers that we can help and we can benefit. I'm excited to see where that goes. I said, it's a very interesting initiative. And one of the reasons why it's interesting is because innately, and I may be wrong, this is another gut feel, but innately lenders don't trust advisors. You're right. <laughs> They're very different types of people. So you have to break down those trust barriers. And I'm just wondering how that's going. And is there a process in your bank that is enabling you to break down those trust barriers. Because one thing that I know that happens often is you have a preconceived notion if you're a lender, and maybe you do if you're an advisor. But once you get to know that person, then you're like, oh, that person's not too bad. I can get along with that person. Yeah, we can do business. And all of a sudden, you're friends. And then things start working. So you're forcing the issue at first, but then it tends to work out. So I'm just wondering what your thoughts are in that regard, breaking down those walls and the trust issues. Well, a lot of our lenders have been here for years. So it really is nice that we've all kind of been friends. And I think we have a benefit that we have a relatively small community bank, even though we're 30 branches now, but we've all known each other for a really long period of time. And now trying to form these relationships and these connections on a different level, I think will be beneficial because we did start out as just, hey, you pass somebody in the hall, you see somebody at the meeting, you start to get to know them, your friends on social media, you ask about the kids. So I think because these relationships have been organic from the beginning and they weren't forced when we didn't know each other, they should be successful moving forward. Yeah. Yeah. And that's one of the benefits of being a community bank, right? It's easier to develop those relationships when you're smaller. Not that it's impossible when you're bigger. It isn't. And I've seen some best practices in that regard, but it is, it does get a little bit more challenging. Cool. Annette, before we move on, any, any final thoughts to that question? 
Yeah, I would just like to add, I understand where Heidi's coming from because we have access to the commercial lenders and things as well. But I would, I resonate what Laura was saying is that the tellers that we're with every single day and all of the branches that we are in, they're our bread and butter. The, the commercial lenders and things like that are, I look at it, that's icing on the cake. If we, because they can go to so many different resources, we have a trust department. We have somewhat of a competition between brokerage and trust just inside of the bank. So we can develop those relationships with the lenders or private banking, et cetera. And if we get uh, referrals from them, that's icing on the cake. But my bread and butter is the people that I'm with every single day in these branches. And we go out of our way to let them know that once we've met with the person that they refer to, this is what happened at the meeting. This is the outcome. You've done a great job. Thanks for recognizing that opportunity. And there's also times where we have to go back and say to them, that was a great opportunity for you to recognize. But in this particular case, the individual was better off going back to the bank and possibly doing a CD because everyone's not going to fit into brokerage or to fit into some type of an investment profile just because they have money, because that money could be intended for different things. So developing relationships all across the board, yes, that's something that we try to do. But the people that I'm with every single day that know the customers that come into the bank better than anybody else, they're my bread and butter. Yeah. Yeah, one thing, if you think about loan officers, whether it's business lenders, mortgage lenders, or whatever, the one interesting thing there is that they have the data. They know the assets of their clients. They know what their liquid net worth is, et cetera. They have a loan application. So you would think they're, they're a wealth of prospects, but I get what you're saying. Day-to-day bread and butter, you have to rely on your branch network, obviously. Bob, I'm going to pass it back to you. Okay. I have been listening very intently on all that has been said. And Heidi, you said it very succinctly just before about these partnerships. Really simple. Partnerships with lenders work to take care of each other's customer. That's it. I didn't use the referral word, sale word, nothing. So that is one of my top three takeaways that I have so far from this podcast, because that's simple. Let's just take care of each other's customers. Okay, now we can put that question to rest. (laughs) Now to the next one. And for this one, I want to focus more on women as investors. Women are becoming an incredibly important market for our industry. They control more and more of the wealth in this country. And it's even increasing as male baby boomers like me pass. I'm not passing anytime soon. And assets transfer to the surviving women. So women are the growing and future market of wealth management. And typically, they're very unhappy with their male advisors. And in fact, 70% of the instances following their husband's passing The woman's first solo investment decision is to fire the incumbent male advisors. Heidi, I'm going to go to you first for this. Why is that the case? How can you prevent that? What are the secrets to working with female clients? Because remember, our audience is probably a bunch of guys as well who are trying to get your trade secrets. So what can we tell the industry? One of the lessons I learned from one of my first widowed clients was that she sat in the meeting and nobody acknowledged her presence. They would have meetings without her. She wouldn't be invited. She would try to come to meetings. And it really was like she wasn't even there. So I really took that to heart from the get-go. And 
I make sure, I think maybe Laura had said this earlier, and really see who plays what role in these meetings. And even if the wife still tries to take a back seat, I'm going to try to pull her into the conversation and ask some pointed questions. Make eye contact because I never want anyone, male or female, to feel like that they're not involved in this conversation because even though women are starting to make a lot more money, you've got men that come in and they say, hey, it's her. She's all over it. But I don't want either spouse to feel neglected when we're doing this type of planning because when you go through our goal planning and monitoring little questions, I need an answer from each of them. I want to know who's worried about no longer having a paycheck, who's worried about someone dying before the other. So I really think if you can sit down and have not just a one-sided conversation and make sure that both members, both members of this partnership are involved, you're going to be a much more successful advisor and they're going to be a much more engaged client. So can I use the word inclusion then for that? <laughs> there you go. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so how simple say, is that? Inclusion. Sorry. Laura, I would say, please. I would say acknowledgement as well. It's not, there's a, to me, there's a big difference between, okay, you're included in the conversation, but acknowledging that couple may have two completely different answers for many different questions. Again, it goes back to the listening, but that's a huge piece of it. I can only imagine. Go ahead, Ned. Yeah, I would just piggyback on what Laura just said. I've been in meetings already where, where there is a husband and a wife. And as I said at the beginning, we sit and we have conversation and specifically ask male the question and ask the female the same questions. And sometimes they look at each other and I never knew that about you. I didn't mm -hmm. know that was important to you. Before they come to the meeting, I don't think they've ever had prior discussions in some cases as to this is what I want my retirement to look like, or these are the things that we want to do, or I'm feeling this and I'm feeling that. And I literally get them looking at each other and almost this, wow, yeah, maybe we need to go home and talk about this a little bit more. I'm sure that comes up when you start talking about protection too. I'm sure there's two totally different answers on how much protection the family unit needs. Yes. Definitely. Wendy. No, I was just going to say, I think one of the things like Annette was getting to is you really need to pay attention to how, not just how they react to what you say, but what each other say. So I've noticed sometimes like the wife or the husband, they'll say something and you can see the other person give a look like, oh no, that's what he wants kind of thing. And it, it noticing when that happens and being able to say, okay, they're acknowledging it right and saying it looks like there's not agreement here um, and then using that to find a solution or helping them to prioritize those goals i think a big one we look at is women tend to focus a lot more on inheritance the legacy that they're going to leave their children or their grandchildren and so helping them find a way that they can get both and so i think like paying attention to each other's reactions and the other thing i think with women is one of the, I always try to make sure my clients understand my philosophy on money. And one of the biggest things I say to them is money is more than dollar signs and numbers. It's emotion. It is a lot of emotion. And I think men 
get that, but women tend to especially get that. And so I think putting that out there and letting your clients know male and especially female that like you understand sometimes you'll make a recommendation because the numbers make sense, but the emotion doesn't make sense for them. And having a conversation about that, I think really helps engage women because they're the ones that are going to be more in tune to the emotions. So this is all bringing me back to a conversation we had a few weeks ago about almost being a life coach in some of these situations. So you're a financial advisor, but you're often the only person these people talk to outside of the two of them. So you're almost coaching them on life decisions and things. And what do you thought? Everyone's nodding. Yes, everyone. OK, this is we're, we're recording this on Zoom. People that are listening can't see, but I have six heads nodding here. We're, I don't even know where to start. Heidi, we'll go with you. So you feel like you're a life coach, huh? I think it says therapist and fine print on some days on a business card. There's been times that you're having this conversation and you print something just to give them some space that you need to excuse yourself from the room to give them a few moments because you can tell it's not a conversation they're having around the dinner table or it's maybe a conversation that one spouse has been trying to have for years and the other one's not acknowledging so a lot of times you play referee, you do play life coach, you play a shoulder to cry on. We keep a box of tissues on the corner of our desk because it can get real deep real fast. And it's not about volatility. It's about what's going on, right? Between the two of them. Here's about volatility. And when things get very emotional and perhaps confrontation, I always tell them, look, I've been married for over 30 years as well. I understand how difficult a lot of these things are to talk about. And especially with a third, with me sitting here, but just know that this is a huge part of what I do. It's a huge part of what I do. I am not just here to earn you an average rate of return. It, everything circles back to planning and acknowledgement. Annette. Yeah, and I just want to say, Laura, you just said acknowledgement, and the acknowledgement is the fact that although these things are difficult to talk about, they're not going away. So let's face them head on so that when we do come up against that situation, it's not as threatening because we've already discussed it and we already have a plan for it. Yeah, yeah exactly. Acknowledgement and inclusion. I'd like to have a do a, like a mic drop right now, but I don't have a microphone. It's my laptop. Any anything else on this before I pass the mic over to Scott? Thanks. That was really good information. That's really. I just wrote my top three uh, takeaways. So the uh, one of the things I always say about the discovery process, which I referenced before, is that one one of the primary responsibilities of an advisor during the discovery process is to learn the emotional factors that influence the financial decision. So if you truly understand your the emotional factors of your client that influence their financial decisions, then you're really going to help them. And sometimes it's as simple as what does it mean for them to take care of their loved ones? Simple question. And the, on the other side of that equation, and that I think you might've referred to this before, but a, a good question is what anxieties do you have about money, right? Understanding their anxieties. And to your point, you're going to get different answers maybe from the husband and the wife in that regard. The fact that Heidi, you keep a box of tissues on the desk is pretty interesting. <laughs> so when you have to use that box of tissues, you're doing a really good job, right? <laughs> All right. So we've been talking about some of the qualities that you have as women advisors that are helpful and how you work with women and the inclusion, et cetera, et cetera. Would any of you describe your practices as practices that specialize 
in serving women's women clients? Net, do you, you want to answer that first? Do you see your practice like that or not really? When I when you ask me that question, I my first thought is I don't specialize specifically in women clients. Working at Fulton, it's not just women that are coming in and it's not just women that are presenting needs that we need to see. I don't say that we specialize in women clients, but once we do have women clients, although they may be part of a couple, we do try to reach out and engage them in maybe just some female things. Like before COVID, we had planned like a mother-daughter sip and paint night. So Once they are our clients, we try to deepen that relationship, not only getting to know the woman themselves on a more personal level, but then that filters down to their children or sometimes even their grandchildren. So it's not that we seek out and specialize in just female clients themselves, but it's the whole relationship of the female going down through like the generations. Yeah. Heidi and Wendy, you both have, I know you both have thoughts, maybe Wendy, since you're, since you're a partner there, we'll let Mm -hmm. you go first. And then Heidi. I've been with Annette for five, six years. So she's been doing this for a long time before I joined our team. And it's funny for her to say, I don't think that because I would say she does. She had, when I started with her, she had a lot of female clients, widows, women who, never got married. And I think we continue to build that. So I think even if she doesn't see it that way, which I think is pretty common for people to not see it as, hey, that's my strength. But I think we definitely, even if we don't describe ourselves that way, it's there. It's definitely there. Yeah, that's interesting. That that was my next question. So if you really analyze your book, do you or do you not specialize in women clients? I guess I just never realized it. But when Wendy said it's I just think that we can emote again, we keep going back to the emotional part of it. We emotionally connect to them and they can connect with us because we tell them it's okay that you don't have a full grasp on what's happening, but we're here to help you. This is what we do. Allow us to help you. To a degree, the future of wealth management is niche markets, right? Because it's just one way to differentiate yourself. I listened to a podcast and it was an interview of a female advisor who went through a tough divorce and is managing her own wealth and decided that she wants to, as an advisor, specialize in very specifically women who have gone through divorces and are managing their own wealth for the first time. That's her whole practice. And she's not geographically bound because she does a lot of virtual stuff and she's killing it. Her practice is just taking off because there's such a need for, and that's a niche within a niche, obviously, but g- good, good example of leveraging your strengths and your own life's experience to help other people that are in a similar situation. So I thought that was fascinating. So Heidi, you have some thoughts as well? Yeah, I was actually going to touch on niche markets myself because I think there's such a push these days from different firms and different organizations to find your niche and to find your calling. And being in a bank, that's really not always possible. I want to help anybody and everybody who walks through these doors to find their financial freedom, to find meet their financial goals. But I will tell you, over the past 15 plus years, it has seemed that because we do lean on our kind of compassion for women and we have catered to them in a more direct manner, that's more of the referrals that I get are women going through divorces or women who have become all of a sudden widowed 
because we do take a good we do take good care of those clients. And so while it's not a niche that I focus on, it's just become a more overwhelming part of my book. Yeah, interesting. Go ahead, Annette. Yep. Yeah, I would agree with Heidi. It's not intentional. And as Wendy indicated, Annette does that, but she doesn't really realize she does it. It's not an an intentional purpose. But because we do such a good job with the female clients we've had, it's the referrals that we're getting from them that builds that female clientele. Yeah, yeah. It's been organic. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And that's the way it usually happens. And then you all of a sudden you realize, wait a second, I'm pretty good at this. And you start focusing more on it. And then it becomes a specialty, right? That becomes your niche. Lord, you are nodding your head. I assume you, you yeah. agree with most of what was it's, said, right? It's the same thing. It's that energy. The energy yeah. travels. And when you're attracting a certain type of person, they have friends that are the same way. And they well, and that's the beauty of a niche, right? Niches are close. Right. There's It's like a f- sorority, so to speak, or a fraternity. And so the referrals are much more organic and more come more readily in a niche. Cool. All right, Bob, I'm going to pass it back to you for the next question. Thanks. Thanks, Scott. And we really haven't asked this question specifically, but we certainly have gotten enough information to answer it already. But let me ask it anyway, and you'll understand why I'm asking this in a second. So what advice do you have for male advisors who are looking to do a better job with female prospects and clients? So, Laura, why don't you lead us off with this? I would just say to them to please just start, continue using free jargon and talking about returns, and you will drive people away and push them towards the female advisor. (laughs) Sorry, I had to get some levity in there. Was that applause, Bob? That's applause. <laughs> I think Bob has to get a better sound machine. Yeah. I'm sorry. Who is speaking next? Good for you, though, Laura. That's a good answer. Yes. Excellent. <laughs> Keep doing it. Works for me. Go, Wendy. <laughs> yeah, I have an interest. I think I have an interesting perspective. I don't know. Maybe it's not. So the first four years I was with a male advisor. And interestingly enough, he kept a lot of his widows and actually brought widows on board, like counters these trends, the the data out there on that. And I think about who he is and then who we are as a women team that that have that too. And it, I think you're right. Like he was so good at analogies, like to be trained under him. Amazing. Like you just really good at teaching. And so I would really say that is like bringing it to a level that someone can understand without being patronizing is going to go a long way, I think with anyone, but very much women who are just coming to get a grasp of that. And he had the emotional side. He was upfront with it. He saw when people were getting emotional or upset, and he would be really empathetic about engaging that of how hard it is that your husband, you've been married how long? And so I think those are the things that we do too, is if their husband just died, they don't want to fill out claim forms. They want to talk about them and having those conversations, not just getting right down to business, letting them know it's okay if we don't do anything for six months too. being patient with them. I think all of those things are going to go a long way for those women that are there in your practice. Exactly. Annette, you had some thoughts. Yeah, I would just give the advice to keep it as simple as possible. What we do can be very complex, but we tell them what they need to know. But think of how much deeper we could go into things and every single detail that's in a prospectus. They want all that. They can read the prospectus. I think what they what the client is looking for is how is this going to benefit me? 
So keeping it very simple and explaining the benefits while also explaining all of the other things that we have to explain, but in a very simple manner. I would also just add one thing, and, I, and I've seen many males do this. They say that, oh, the client will ask something, can I do this? Can I do this? Can I do this? Or the male advisor, yep, 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 we can do that. And then the female client walks out and they look and say, well, how, how do we do that? I think we can do that. Where I feel like a female is more, I'm not really sure if I know the answer to that, but I, if you're okay with it, I'd like to research a little bit and I'll get back to you. So it's not so much, I'm not going to have an answer 100% of the time right then and there. So to step back and say, I don't know everything on this end either. So I'm like you in a certain way. Don't be afraid to ask questions, but I won't be afraid to tell you that I don't know the answer right now, but I will find out and I will get back to you. And that's a great point. No one can be an expert on everything and admitting that is not a problem. That can help the situation, the conversation immensely. Correct. All right. I think we're going to move to the next question. Well, it's the last question before our lightning round fun question, turning the tables a little bit and looking at organizations that are trying to do a better job recruiting female advisors. So the question is, what advice do you have for organizations that are trying to recruit more female advisors? Anything specifically, Wendy? I was at Fulton when I started, there were about five female advisors and we have probably at least 15 now. I've seen an organization that does that. And I think one of the things that helped was they were intentional about it. When I started, there were four of us as associates that they hired. Three of them were women. And from my perspective, I think that was partially that they saw it. They saw, hey, we don't have a lot of women this is an important part. They bring a different perspective. And if you don't, if you don't even acknowledge that you don't have that right now, I think that's a big part of it. And being intentional and saying, Hey, if we see women out there that are succeeding in this business, we can't just sit there and watch them go by. We have to like actively seek that out too. And I've stayed at Fulton because I think they've created a culture where people support each other. I think it's not that cutthroat idea of finance. People ask all the time, they're like, oh, you're in finance and men. And I'm just like, we have a lot of men that really support our business. And the other women there, they engage with us the same way that they do our male colleagues. And I think you have to create that team environment too. I think that really is going to draw women as well. Yeah, good points. Heidi, you have some thoughts? I really think the word financial advisor can just be a turnoff. And so I think if the industry as a whole can break down what a financial advisor does, it's just a scary word. You say it to a bank customer coming in, do you want to meet with our financial advisor? And it's just at first you put up kind of those roadblocks to, oh, that's investments at stock market. And it's so much more than what we do on a daily basis than just worrying about what's going on in the stock market. I had no idea that I would get into this business when I started at the bank right at 20 years ago. And by observing what one of the male advisors on staff does on a daily basis for his customers and being able to start to work alongside him, I realized what impact I could make in this industry and make on individual lives. So I think if the industry as a whole would just really shift its focus and its language to not just be like, hey, let's be a financial advisor, come into this business, we want more women, and really explain what that looks like on a daily basis, I think it'd be more successful. Any ideas for what the title should be? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 
that is a work in progress, <laughs> obviously. You have a thought? Yeah, I would uh, agree with what Heidi was just saying. We're going to go back to inclusion again. It's inclusion. A female is just as capable of doing this job as a male advisor. And I think a female has attributes and qualities that a male doesn't and probably vice versa. But when I came to Fulton, I was the only female advisor amongst 40 other males. And that was 23 years ago. And a a female has to work twice as hard to get the respect that a male advisor is going to get. And as we progress to bringing more and more women on board, like Wendy was saying, there's reasons to have them on board. And Fulton, I think, recognized the emotional part that a female advisor can bring to the program. Wendy, you have some thoughts? Yeah, I I think we talked earlier when I was a teenager, I was like, I want to be a financial advisor. And there was a period of time where I actually was like, no, I don't think I want to do that. And it was actually like a career day, I think probably my junior or senior year of high school. And they had someone that was a financial advisor come in and he pretty much said it's sales. And I was like, well, I don't want to do sales. And even when I came out of college and I took this job, I was a little nervous. I was like, oh my gosh, sales, like sales sounds scary. It sounds scary for your income. It sounds scary for the skill set. But I think of it as relationship management. You're building relationships. And to your point earlier of recruiting people, if we're recruiting people in general, male or female as sales, you're missing a whole aspect of what we do. And the idea that people want to have a job that has meaning where you're helping people. That was what I really wanted to do out of college. And that was another apprehension I had was like, oh, I'm going to be in finance and I'm not going to care about anything other than money. And this is the total opposite of that. And I think by using financial advisor and making it seem like it's finance, we're really missing a lot of people who would be extraordinary at this job and helping people. And I think sales is just ultimately, maybe it is what we do, but I don't, I've never really viewed my job that way. Money coach. (laughs) (laughs) Laura, did did you have some wrap up thoughts to that question? No, I was just sitting here trying to figure out what an appropriate title would be. (laughs) I I like money coach. (laughs) All right. We've covered a lot of ground and appreciate all of your input. I think it might be time to get to the fun question, Bob. Yes, it is time. And here comes the bell to signify this is our lightning round question. What's your favorite weekend escape? Heidi. All of my friends call me cruise director Heidi because I like to travel like nonstop. So if I can cruise anywhere, I will go camping. If you just take me anywhere that is not my house and not my day-to-day life, I am in. Plan. <laughs> in a heartbeat. Sign me up for that plan any day. Annette, what's your escape? My escape is anywhere that is warm and my feet are in the sand. So you could take me to any beach at any time of the year and sit there and just disconnect from everything, which is hard for me to do, but it's so rewarding when I'm able to do that. And there's a lot of beaches right in Pennsylvania, so I get that for sure. (laughs) Uh, Wendy. 
Um, so I, I love to travel. So that's definitely on there. But I also love to eat. My husband and I love, we live in Philadelphia, actually. And there's so much good food here. So our weekend thing, like we love going out and trying new places because there's so much out there. And even just what people see as like hole in the wall places, like some of them have the best food. So that's what we love doing on the weekend. Just forget about everything. Have a few great drinks and some great food. Oh, okay. I have a follow-up question that you're from Philly. Best cheesesteak? Oh, oh gosh. <laughs> Isn't it Geno's or something? Uh, cheesesteaks from anywhere are usually good. So Pat's and Geno's are like the two big ones that are on opposite corners. But I'm a Tony Luke's fan. Okay. They're in South Philly. And you can park really easy, which people who are not from the city will love. And you're about mm, like four or five blocks from all the stadiums. So if you're going to a game, you go to Tony Luke's first and then go tailgate and then go wherever you're going after that. Hopefully somebody from Tony Loops hears this podcast and sends you a coupon for a couple freebies. Um, <laughs> I don't know if we have that. I don't know if we have that wide you, uh, listenership yet. They do that on talk shows all the time. Let's see what happens. Yeah. Laura. <laughs> so my favorite weekend escape is my husband and I were fortunate to be able to buy a second home in Truckee, California, which is up by Lake Tahoe. And for us, it's a three-hour drive, and that is our weekend escape. It is my place of peace. It's up awesome. in the trees. We hike, we bike, and we have a really big wine cellar, and perhaps we uh, drink wine. Perhaps. Uh, it's more the wine than the trees, I bet. Mm, That's perhaps. cool. <laughs> this is the best Laura, part of we're going to come visit. Yeah, well, we're not. Yeah. <laughs> Next podcast is from Truckee. We should there all be go. recording this from Truckee in person. There yes, we go. Yes. <laughs> one, of, one, of my, one of my favorite parts of podcasts is when I get to ask Scott a question. Yeah. It's funny, <laughs> Laura, you should mention Tahoe because I, I lived in San Francisco for seven years. My answer is related to that. But yeah, I, I did a ton of skiing in Tahoe, mm -hmm. lived out there and absolutely yeah. loved it. So my best weekend escape, and I, and I have to think historically here, because this was BC before children, is backpacking in Yosemite. So mm -hmm. I did a ton of that and getting into the Yosemite backcountry for mm -hmm. a weekend, just away from everything and everybody and out in nature is a life experience, no doubt. So that that is my all-time favorite weekend escape, just backpacking in Yosemite for a weekend. So, Bob, what about you? Well, as you know, I toggle between New York and Fort Lauderdale. So my weekend escape is going to either of those places and going to the beach and just walking along the beach and getting my feet in the warm sand, as was alluded to earlier. But uh, And I'm lucky because one is across the street and the other one's two miles away, depending on where I am. So there you go. And I've experienced one of the two, your, yes. your Florida place, and I will vouch for that. <laughs> all right. I think that's a wrap. And I want to thank all of you for participating and spending time with us and all of your, your upfront answers and advice, et cetera, et cetera. So thank you very much. This is a very enjoyable discussion. We had some fun with it and much, much appreciated. So Bob, you have the wrap up, I believe. I do have the wrap up and of course my, my top three takeaways, but kudos again to Raymond James for this panel. All I have to say is, wow. Thanks to all of our panelists once again. Every time we have a, a podcast, I always have my top three takeaways. I have my top three and I have a bonus this time. Number one, financial planning is calming, especially with volatility. Number two, partnerships with lenders works to take care of each other's customers. Words matter. It's that simple. Number three, acknowledgement and inclusion 
of your client or clients, both of them. And the bonus this month is keep a box of tissues on your desk. So <laughs> with that, that was an awesome conversation. After you listen to this podcast, you know what? Listen to it again. There is so much to really take in from this. And that's really all I have. Enjoy the day. And thanks again, Ray J, one more time. This is Grace Austin of Raymond James. The Financial Institution Division at Raymond James has many women who are able to become very successful in their field through our department, including these women, Laura Pedrincelli, Heidi King, Wendy Ellis, and Annette Martin. In a male-dominant industry, Raymond James FID shines through in their ability to support and encourage women advisors. When you get a group of motivated women advisors together, the possibilities are endless, which creates opportunities for both business success and ultimately client satisfaction. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Industry Leadership and Success. We hope you found the discussion enjoyable and valuable. Also, don't forget to check out our two other podcast series, Untangling FinTech and BISA Industry Trend Watch. Please subscribe to our podcast and join us again for future episodes.